This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Tonight we bring you number 40, All the President's Men. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. But, before we get to the show, a few housekeeping notes. One, if you haven't been listening to the Dynasty Download, you're missing out. We're covering everything you need for your weekly fantasy football lineups, especially if you play Dynasty League football like we do. There are two episodes each week, so there's more than enough content to get you and your lineup ready each week. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. With that, Dad, are you ready to discuss all the President's Men? I am. So let's just cover the basic blocking and tackling. Let's do the plot summary here just for the general audience. Uh, I don't know how familiar everybody is like we are with this movie. Two green reporters and rivals working for the Washington Post, Bob Woodward, played by Robert Redford, and Carl Bernstein, played by Dustin Hoffman, researched the botched 1972 burglary of the Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate apartment complex. With the help of a mysterious source, codenamed Deep Throat, played by Hal Holbrook, the two reporters make a connection between the burglars and a White House staffer. Despite dire warnings about their safety, the duo follows the money all the way to the top. This uh, movie was nominated for Best Picture in 1976, unfortunately losing out to uh, Rocky, which we'll get to here in a second. It was nominated for Best Director for Alan J. Pakula, Editor. Supporting Actress for Jane Alexander. It won for Best Supporting Actor for Jason Robards. Adapted Screenplay, Sound, and Art Direction. In 2007, it was added to the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition list at number 77. It was the number or was number 34 on AFI's America's Most Inspiring Movies list, 77 on the Top 100 Thrilling Movies. The characters of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein shared the rank of number 27 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list. In 2015, The Hollywood Reporter polled hundreds of Academy members, asking them to re-vote on past controversial decisions. Academy members indicated that, given a second chance, they would award the 1977 Oscar for Best Picture to all the President's Men instead of Rocky. So, Dad, what is your connection to this movie? Well, first of all, I lived through Watergate, so this was always a fascinating story. It was, um, let's see, when the Watergate investigation really started was 73, and then in the summer of 74, um, so I would have been nine, eight, nine years old. Um, and I watched the hearings, <clears throat> because I was a complete nerd when it came to politics and history and all that. So I and then when the book came out, I actually read the book while it was in junior high school and um, uh, did not see the movie until I think it was on HBO uh, in 1980, 81, somewhere in there. Um, but I had read the book. This would be the part of the podcast where you might insert something like nerd alert. Uh, my experience and my relationship to this movie is, is I think I've watched this movie uh, once every calendar year since I was about 12. And it was specifically because you watch this movie a lot and it's incredibly rewatchable. So 
this was my only relationship to what Watergate was for a long time. Now, there's been a lot more material recently. There's some really great podcasts, uh, a few different uh, books, and um, there have been some documentaries, some other things that have really been done to dig through stuff, especially in the last uh, four or five years. But for a long time, this pretty much defined the relationship most people had, uh, the general public, to what happened in Watergate, other than uh, Nixon resigning and some of that. So let's jump to what is this movie about. For me, it's that no one should be too powerful to quote-unquote get away with criminal activity and the sheer importance of relentless journalism. Yes, it, there are several moments or several scenes, and I and I'm trying to remember that it's a panning shot, but not panning, or I mean, not a, a zoom shot in, but zooming out shot. They do that on two separate occasions. One when they're going through all of the slips of the stuff, material taken out from by the White House and the Library of Congress, and they do the zoom out into the top of the Library of Congress to show how point or how small they are in comparison to what they're trying to accomplish. And then the other was when they had the list of creep committee to reelect the president's uh, staff and they're interviewing them. And then they said, well, we're going to have to start over. And then they do the zoom out to show all of Washington, D.C. And again, showing that these two guys are minimal, minuscule in the greater picture of things, but yet they're trying to effectuate a change. They're trying to do something important. I don't want to get too much into the historical context and politics, but I think there is almost nothing more American than a movie like this. And this really set the template for journalism movies, especially after this. Almost every journalism movie is compared to this because most of the formatting how its style is done its pacing uh how you even cover or like the the shots of a newsroom or any of those things all kind of come from this movie but yet why i say it's incredibly american the idea that a powerful political entity could be undone by two guys that are so green is such an extraordinary and revolutionary idea, even in 1976, okay, we're at the bicentennial at that point, that I, I wonder if we really recognize. At the same time, I will say that as far as the legacy of Watergate, I've maintained for a few years that I think the uh, episode of that, while being good for journalism was extremely had such a negative effect on the history of American politics because I think that's really the seeds of although it did come after the Pentagon Papers but uh, it was really the true seeds of undermining our trust in our democracy at the same time. And I think we've been on kind of a downward spiral since that we're constantly looking for conspiracies and uh, all these ways that everybody's lying and trying to cheat us. And you can 
put a through line from that to uh, Iran-Contra to um, the Clinton years to uh, the 2000 election, and, and now you get into this weird uh, median uh, environment that we're currently in and the generally um, disparate and polarized nature of the country at large. And I don't want to get into the, the political side of this. I just you can't not address some of the historical and political context when it comes to this movie. You have to understand that um, we just came out of the 60s, which was a uh, turbulent time, the worst year, probably, or one of the worst years in American history, 1968. Uh, Nixon was about as polarizing a figure as um, there was. Nixon's election, in large part, he usurped uh, the popularity of George Wallace by using the Southern strategy of trying to get Southern Democrats to cross over and vote for him. And it was a huge issue. Like You said the Pentagon Papers, but it was the Vietnam War in in and of itself. The Pentagon Papers just revealed to the public the, the nature and extent of the lies were being perpetrated um, by prop, basically it was propaganda by our federal government about the Vietnam War. This was just the last straw. And then, of course, after Watergate, you have all the rest of this stuff that comes out. We have the church hearings. Frank Church, the uh, senator from Indiana, did these, investigating how the CIA was involved in overthrowing uh, Mossadegh in Iran how, you know, different things that were going on. It tainted a whole generation or several generations to distrust their government. And then what it also did is there was a large group of people who just decided that, hey, uh, we don't care. We're going to blindly follow our government because the alternative of this isn't any better. It's radicalism. It's uh, liberalism. It's all the, the cultural stuff we don't want. And I think the, the seeds of a lot of the discontent and the negativity that exists today and the, the cultural and political split that exists now are rooted in this and go back to the days of Nixon. All right. I, I'm not going to. I think we would be down a long rabbit hole if we tried to go too much further. So let's just move into best performance. I thought for a while, and I won't use my nominee for best performer, because I'm pretty sure you're going to have the best performer uh, similar to mine. So what I'm going to do instead is make an argument for the guy that I was trying to... Uh, find a way to nominate him as the best performer and couldn't figure out a way to do so over two other guys. So I assume you're going to give uh, Robert Redford the best performer, and thus I'm going to talk about uh, Dustin Hoffman. So All right, that's fine. Part of the reason that this movie is going to probably, not probably, is going to have a high legacy uh, moment for me, uh, or a grade, I guess, is that we have so many taglines. I mean, Bob Woodward, this like season, 
I mean, we're not even out of fall. He just released a book that had some meaning on the current presidential election. And everybody still associates him so closely with this whole thing. His career is still taking place. And he still has the ability to undermine politicians, what, some 40, 50 years later? I mean, it's extraordinary how long and important his career has essentially been. And yet we get a lot of uh, these guys more in um, general interviews and the rest of it. And part of the reason I bring that up is you can tell how much of a crab apple that Carl Bernstein is. He is such a odd figure who seems to only have softened in his old age, but only slightly. He's had a very difficult existence for a long time. If I remember right, he's had some issues with substance abuse. I don't want to uh, make uh, – if I'm wrong on that, I, I apologize. because You're, I, you're I don't not. Wanna... All right, but still. And – He's had, uh, I mean, they make even a comment on that during the course of this movie. Is there a place you don't smoke? I mean, the the guy is such a odd character, and yet Dustin Hoffman somehow not only plays him well, because if you see him in interviews, it's really not that far off, and also seemingly makes him somewhat likable, and that's a tif- difficult accomplishment to do. So I just want to at least recognize him, even though I nominated Redford because I really couldn't not or nominate Robert Redford. But I, I just thought he needed at least some recognition because of his place in this movie. Well, you know, um, if you were not aware, uh, Carl Bernstein was married to um, uh, Nora Ephron. Nora Ephron. And in fact... Um, one of the things he did a uh, uh, there was a movie made about um, the two of them and their marriage breaking up with um, Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson and um, Ironweed I believe was the name of the film and it talked about the just incredible problems that existed both uh, mentally and substance you know, with substance and alcohol and some people have a difficult time with celebrity. And I think to some extent, Carl Bernstein had a lot more difficult time with celebrity than Bob Woodward did. So you did mention it uh, when we did our Sleepless in Seattle episode number 30 uh, back in August. Uh, Go check that one out if you haven't already. But you mentioned that they were uh, married at the time and thought that was a, a nice anecdote. But uh, one of the pieces of my own research was is there's a different version of this script that she and Carl Bernstein actually wrote and submitted to Redford. And if you remember the scene where he fakes out the secretary in order to get into the Florida lawyer's office, or I, I can't remember Prosecutor. exactly his... Darkest. Oh, sure, sure. But yeah. played by... Uh, um, Ned Beatty. Ned Beatty, thank you. Uh, that whole scene is ripped from the Bernstein Efron uh, script. It w- did not appear in the actual script. It was not in the book. It never actually took place. But it was a way of uh, making Bernstein this um, kind of comical, but uh, also um, somewhat, I guess the, the term is 
lady man type character, I guess extra confident or uh, con man type character, I, I guess. I, I, I don't okay. have a great way of describing it. but And so, I, I don't know. I, I, there's, there's a difficulty with that, and I just wanted to recognize it. So, that being said, let's... Uh, who did you nominate for your best performer? Redford. He just had a presence throughout the film. He was the glue. There were so many great performances. And there, again, we t- I've mentioned this so many times that I would love to do a, uh, a character actors uh, episode at some point in time as a specialty. A special episode. There's so many great character actors in here. Um, mm-hmm. From Martin Balsam to Jack Warden. Um, you know, I mean, they're just great and they, they do so many different things well in this film. And, and, um, even Hal Holbrook, who has at times been a star has also been more of a character actor or second banana. And he played the part brilliantly. Uh, I don't know in, in actually having studied some film and listened to interviews and such that Mark felt gave, uh, I don't know how they could have found a better actor to play Deep Throat. But I think ultimately it's Redford that's the foundation for all of these other performances that made them work. I'll take it a step further. The reason I, I didn't think his performance was uh, above anybody else's necessarily. I thought he worked well in a great ensemble. The reason he got my best performance and why I couldn't uh, really nominate anybody else is his work in getting the film made. It, this was his passion project. This was the origination really of him being a filmmaker and trying to put a lot of these things together. I mean, he did go on to win best director a, a few years after this uh, for a much different movie. We'll cover at a different time, but this is him figuring out that he wanted to transcend just being on screen and being more as part of this. I don't know how much he had film-wise or filmmaking-wise before this movie, but the sheer number of things. He bought the rights to the book. He went through the entire script-writing process. He was involved in uh, most of the major casting decisions, everything else. And for what the movie eventually has become... I have to give it to him just for how the the sheer volume of things that he contributed towards this movie. Well, you have to add in the fact he did so much too, not just acting wise, but the production aspect. He's the one who hired uh, William Goldman, who was the um, uh, screenwriter. Goldman had been the screenwriter for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which Newman and Redford had been in. He more or less uh, kind of recruited Ellen uh, uh, Pacula, and that was based on part on the fact that Pacula had been uh, had done a very good job in a courtroom or a suspense type film. Do you know what film that was? I came across it today, and the the name of it escapes me. To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, that's not the one that uh, that I came across, but okay. But he also did, after this, uh, he did uh, Clute, which was a Donald Sutherland uh, film with Jane Fonda. He did um, 
He wrote the uh, screenplay for Sophie's Choice, and he also directed Presumed Innocent, which was Harrison Ford, and uh, The Pelican Brief. There was a different journalism movie that he made a couple of years before this that I happened to come across, and I cannot remember the name of it, but all right. So uh, best secondary performer, I'm going to let you go first. I'm going to go different just so nominate more people i'm gonna go with jack warden because every time there was a point in the film where things weren't going the way it should or the way it could jack warden seemed to always have the lines that kind of drew it back together um you know who's chuck or who's chuck colson um i'm glad you asked me that because you know um hey don't you remember when you were hungry these guys are hungry Every time it just seemed like he had some mechanism, some vehicle by which he kind of kept the film together or kept the tie between the story and Woodward and Bernstein. I did enjoy him for how much he really comes through in this film. I do, to a certain extent, wish they would have given Martin Balsam a little bit more to do, but for what it's worth... My secondary performer is Jason Robards. Just, again, you can't really deny how well he did encapsulating. And I think it's pretty much the associated take everyone has on Ben Bradley at this point. However, Jack Warden's version or his character, and I can't remember the name of his character at the moment, uh, really is the first half of the movie what Bradley and Jason Robards are to the second half of the movie. It's kind of driving the story forward. It's the boss. It's kind of the, the glue, the mechanism, the oil, if you will. And I know that those all things um, don't necessarily make sense in context unless you know exactly what I'm talking about. But they stitch together the narrative so that it gives it a, a more of a context and background as to what these guys were going up against. And... Uh, I thought he did an excellent job. He's incredibly entertaining every time he's on in this movie. And similarly, I think Robards accomplishes a similar feat in the second half of the movie where he becomes kind of the journalism gatekeeper. For the One of the legacies of this movie is how much rigorous journalism was accomplished especially in context of modern journalism so they keep mentioning it multiple times during the course of this the amount of unnamed sources or whatever else and that's become a huge deal how readily willing and able journalism is anymore to use anonymous sources and and the rest of it in order to publish news currently and Robards is there to basically put the backstop on and be, more or less be the journalism gatekeeper as to whether stuff is going to go out because he still feels a sense of responsibility that they have to get things right before they're going to go out, that they can't just publish theories. They have to actually back it up with hard facts. And I, I think that's a necessary character in any one of these types of movies where you have to have somebody that keeps you just enough in line, that gives you a leash 
to pursue the the avenue you need to, but also brings you back down to earth and says you can't go too far. Well, just remember that when this film was made, Jason Robarts had basically just gotten through his own rehab. He had been treated for uh, severe alcoholism. Um, he had a had been married to, or he had been married to Gina Rollins, who was in a previous movie, The Notebook. And the reason that marriage fell apart was because he was uh, not just a drunk, but a very mean drunk. Um, so he quit drinking, and this was really his comeback. And I, I, I'm going to admit, I bifurcated this because even though I would have probably said him, I'm giving him the most charismatic. Um, and I'll give that right now because of that. I just think he really came across um, as a guy that could have been a huge star if his personal demons had not derailed a large portion of his career because he was really good. You know, and you think about it. Ben Bradley, in addition to being the editor of the Washington Post and one of Jack Kennedy's best friends, was played in two movies by Jason Robarts and Tom Hanks. This guy's got a some or Ben Bradley had somewhat of a charmed life because there's not too many people that can say that they uh, were friends with the president, had such an important job, and got played by two very big named uh, actors uh, in movies. So Robarts brought the character to life, but I think to some extent he had a character that he could bring to life. So you gave your most charismatic. I'm going to go completely into left field, and I have felt this way since I first watched the movie. Uh, it really didn't take me that long, but every time I come to that particular scene, I, I just find him oddly charismatic. Robert Walden, the guy who plays Donald Segretti. For whatever reason, <laughs> I get to that scene in the movie, and he seems inviting, he seems unassuming, uh, he seems like he could be a just generally innocent guy who's caught in a bad situation where he wanted to do something uh, well and yet somehow has ended up that he's um, really doing something poorly. And I know the movie probably presents him in a much better light than the real Donald Segretti actually probably deserved, but for whatever reason, he just has this... Uh, pop off the screen ability to me in that like maybe scene two scenes scene and a half type of situation he's basically in the movie for like eight minutes and i always can tell uh certain points in the movie by that scene so for me i that just has always stood out i nominate him as my most charismatic all right let's move to best scene okay. uh the first one i'm going to do is bernstein rewrites woodward so the the scene where he's basically pulling Woodward's finished product out of the basket and he's rewriting it and they're, they're going back and forth. And it's really the pacing or the, the uh, setting where these two are starting to figure out how to work together. And I think it's so um, elegant of a devising that they put it this way for him to basically rewrite it and then figure out how to do it where – uh, Woodward might be the better reporter, might be the better investigator, 
but Bernstein might end up being the better wordsmith or at least have a little bit more know-how on, on journalism. And whenever you have one of these team-up type of situations, you have to have some type of devising that gives them a reason to kind of come together. In this particular movie, they're both in diff different situations. Bernstein is assigned to something completely else. He just happens to be interested in this particular story and so he keeps finding ways to be around what's going on, whereas Woodward's kind of on the crime beat, and he's the bigger newbie, if you will. And it's his story, but Bernstein figures out a way of um, making himself important enough to Woodward that now they have to work on it together. And for the, the elegance not only of the writing that makes it not feel forced, but feels a natural part of the evolution of this team... I think that's a wonderful use of, of that particular scene. What's your next one? Uh, the Library of Congress scene. I, I touched on it, the zoom out, kind of the, the the camera angle coming down, seeing just the, you know, the, they're so insignificant from this mo or, or monumental task that they're trying to undertake. Um, it just, to me, uh, really conveys what they were trying to accomplish just two guys who didn't have anything really special or anything going for them other than just tenacity. First off, I've heard that that uh, specific shot referenced in a, a number of different places, so it's one of the most famous shots from this movie, um, if not just like journalism movies in general. But, and this isn't, oh, I guess it is one of my nominees, so let, let's just go into it. But them figuring out how to investigate the $25,000 check from Kenneth H. Dahlberg, and uh, we're going to go find whatever reference we can in the clips. And that whole scene, I kept thinking to myself so much, God, these guys must have really loved when Google came around. I mean, you you think of how you search any bit of disparate information anymore, any or any old fool would have literally just been typing in Kenneth Dahlberg into Google, and they would have found that in five minutes. Whereas these guys are basically flipping through huge novels in order to find one reference of this guy, and then they finally found him. And then the conversation with Dahlberg and uh, you know uh, all of the background surrounding it, that he's a Minnesota fundraiser, and he turned over checks to certain people, and how that all comes together, but it just... That's the one place in his movie performances for ever and ever and ever after this point. And this is the quotable line that uh, I can say with some level of uh, fervor and appropriateness. I dare you to say what again? Samuel L. Jackson for Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yes. He is, and I know as much as we did pan that movie for certain lines and that whole big kahuna uh, royale with cheese scene is infamous and the whole thing but there are just such smaller parts to the movie and i i think more specifically if i'm to highlight any one scene of samuel L. jackson when he gets into that philosophical mode toward the end of the movie and the conversation he has with travolta where he's more or less expounding on what he's going to do with his life once the job is over and all of those particular aspects of that that scene, I just I think that's his most magical part of that because you can intimately know him and yet 
understand and find humor in exactly what he's doing or accomplishing. And he's just so secure in exactly who he is in that particular movie that it was, it seems like it was made for him. Number six for me, uh, Lee J. Cobb. And it's not for 12 angry men, but for on the waterfront. Yep. And so I, I just think he always had a presence on screen. He always came across as being strong and, and powerful. And you just gravitated to him whenever. He's absolutely menacing in that movie. I mean, it, just the, the gravitas of how people bent around him in that movie is extraordinary. All right, so my number five, and I think most people will easily know this. This is somebody who has been a bit character in a few different movies. But he's had a long, long and extraordinary career. But I think this might be the thing more than anything else that people know him for, despite being the actor with the most uh, Oscar nominations, I believe, in history. Uh, you can't handle the truth. Jack Nicholson for A Few Good Men. It, realistically, he has basically three scenes in the movie. He has that opening sequence where they're trying to figure out what to do about uh, the situation. He has the second one where Tom Cruise comes to Cuba and they meet over breakfast and have that. And then it's the courtroom scene. And if you listen to anybody describe the courtroom scene, I think there's a series of interviews that Rich Eisen did with all of the people that were involved in that scene. And just the amount of takes. Apparently Nicholson did that exact same performance and he could just flip a switch and turn into Colonel Jessup on a dime. He did that literally all day. Because the way that they conduct acting or uh, the camera shoots is is that he will read off the line and people will act off of it so that they get the alternate shots from different angles. Apparently, Nicholson did like 85 different takes and he was the same in every single one of them. The version you see on film was him in every single uh, performance with Cruz and with Kevin Bacon and everybody else that's in that moment and that courtroom scene. And it's just extraordinary, that speech. I mean, that has to be one of the best monologues in the history of cinema. The the just majesty of that moment, because you're waiting for it. Is he going to do it? Is he going to admit to it? Yes. You know he wants to. It's just on the precipice. It's right there. Yes. Oh, it, oh they got him. And then he owns up to it. And he doesn't just do it in a small way. No, he wants to go for the whole thing. And just, oh, it, it's glorious. It's the moment, literally, that you wait for. Like, if it's ever on cable and it comes before the courtroom scene or it's anywhere around it, you're like, yep, I'm staying for the courtroom scene. Well, see, Jack Nicholson was originally trained through the or, uh, Roger Corman film studio, who did a lot of the B films in the 60s. And they couldn't afford real scripts. So a lot of times what would end up happening is, is it would be like a, a generic scene. Roger walks into a room, and he sees three people with guns. Go. And so they would just uh, ad-lib the dialogue. And so to this day, a lot of times Jack Nicholson will do the lines that are written, and then you'll just continue to shoot, and he'll go off on these tangents where he just ad-libs stuff and adds stuff to the character and to the lines and such. In The Departed, apparently there were several scenes that made the film 
that were not in the script for that very reason. Jack Nicholson just got into the part. They just kept the fam or the film rolling and let him go. And that's what ended up happening. But I understand exactly. I have a hard time thinking of Jack Nicholson as a character actor, but okay. I I understand. understand. I've bent the rules a few different times. That's part of the reason that I went with uh, singular performances as opposed to uh, character actors just generally. But All right. So what is your number five? Uh, Donald Trump for... uh, Oh, uh, God. For... (laughs) Home Alone 2. Please tell me you're not just doing this for the joke. Yes, I'm doing it for the joke. So what's your real number five, asshole? (laughs) Uh, My number... Or real number five is Eli Wallach, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Blondie! He he was trained in the actor's studio. He was uh, there with Eli Kazan. He was there with uh, Brando. He was there with all of them. And uh, for whatever reason, because he tended to be a little more dark-complected, he made a career of playing Hispanics. Uh, because he also played the villain in The Magnificent Seven. But I think it was his last film I really enjoyed him in, which was The Holiday, uh, yep. a Christmas film. And um, just a very wonderful character actor that just really was, from what I can understand, was a real gentleman and real um, a, a real generous actor to those around him and was always helpful to everybody around him. So... I just, not just for his acting, but just for him in general, I think he needs to be on the list. Or had you seen The Holiday before a few months ago when I showed it to you? Um, I thought we had watched it last year, not just recently. All right, well then I'm glad I showed it to you then. Uh, Another uh, great Christmas classic. Um, All right, my number four. There are some actors, when they come onto the scene, and they do such a extraordinary performance. It like sears a memory of oh, who is this guy? I mean, he's just fantastic. That's the way I feel about Christoph Waltz for Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> he is so yeah. outstanding. The way he's able to interchange between so many different languages, but like do it for a purpose. Not that he's just showing off. And at a certain point in the movie. You, you find such a comfort that he's so destined for this SS officer type that it, it feels like he's uh, flexing for literally the entire movie. He's sinister while being smiley. He, he just has this ability to silently stick the knife in you when you're not expecting it and then be absolutely ruthless and tear your head off the next moment. And he just comes in and out and in and out of this character, and it never feels like it ever takes you out of it. He's another one that he owns absolutely every scene he's in in that movie. And I cannot say highly enough, this was episode four for us, I believe, uh, with Sarah going way, way back to the beginning of the show. But uh, he is absolutely extraordinary in that movie, and I, I he definitely deserved to be up there for me. Okay. Number four for you. Yep, number four for me. Uh, Thelma Ritter. The uh, female character actor from the 50s. She only did a few films. She was in All About Eve. 
She was in Rear Window. She was in Pillow Talk and The Birdman of Alcatraz. She was nominated for four Best Supporting Actresses. She always, every time I've watched Rear Window, I mean, Grace Kelly is beautiful. And James Stewart is, you know, he's James Stewart. But Thelma Ritter is so, she's the comic relief. She is in Pillow Talk. She just has this knack for being just on the edge of raw. And I always have enjoyed her in films. Can I can I slightly alter, suggest a different uh, potential synonym for raw? Unfiltered. Okay. Okay, that's a little better, I suppose. Um, but yes. So that's, I, I picked her. Yeah, she's always that sassy type. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've, I've never been particularly drawn into her performances. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by that one from you. Okay. But I can buy it. Uh, number three for me is another one of these from this year that uh, it's such an extraordinary performance. And it, he's been such a good actor for a long time in a lot of different projects, um, even down to the really mundane stuff that he does. He just is able to play them so well. And this is a movie we're going to be covering in a couple of weeks. Uh, but he is another one that the minute he pops on screen, he has such a gravitas and a presence and owns absolutely every frame. J.K. Simmons for Whiplash. He's just, uh, I, I really don't know how to describe it. And I think I'm going to pass a little bit in this moment since we're going to be covering it in a couple of weeks. So I, I won't undercut myself too much but to just invite people since we're going to be covering this here in the next couple of weeks it's currently available on i think showtime and prime prime is probably the one that's more available to people if you have not seen whiplash it is only about 90 minutes go watch it and you will know exactly what i'm talking about for jk simmons it was easily in my opinion the best film of the year but anyway I'm going to be sheepish, uh, sheepishly admitting to something here. Okay. I had, I had like 75 different actors and actresses on my list originally. Mm-hmm. I eliminated some that I knew you would pick so that they would get mentioned. So okay. I knew you would pick J.K. Simmons, so I left him off my list, even though his performance in Whiplash would probably have been in my top ten. That's fine. I've enjoyed the fact that we have two very different lists. Okay. Number three. This is going to be an odd one for you. Jack Warden. He was yeah, in okay. All the President's Men, uh, 12 Angry Men, the From Verdict. Here to Eternity, Shampoo, The I Aviator. Him being from Here to Eternity. Yep. He played one of the, one of the uh, guys in the platoon. It was one of his okay. early roles in film. He was huh. in The Aviator. So the he's had a long, movie? long career. And uh, he always just played it. He had to be in his 90s when he did The Aviator. Yes. Good Lord. He worked up until, I think he passed when he was like 94 or 95. And I think he worked up until like the last couple of years. I mean, I should I mean, probably he, go back and rewatch that at one point he, because he did an episode of Bewitched in like 1966. Well, from here to eternity is 1954. Yep. So yeah, he you know he went back and forth. I mean, I I always I thought of his character where he's playing the uh, 
the husband of uh, Julie Christ, or I think it was Julie Christie in uh, Shampoo, who doesn't have a clue. He thinks Warren Beatty's gay is because he's a hairdresser, and he's basically servicing all of his uh, clients through the film. It, it's an interesting oh. film. Um, in that, um, oh, why am I drawing a blank? Uh, Nashville, Nash, um, the director. Uh, Robert Altman? Yeah, isn't that a Robert Altman film? I don't think so. I think Warren Beatty directed it. I thought it was one of his first directorial uh, efforts. Yeah. It'd be I know at least up. he did Heaven Can Wait, so. So, uh, but, all right, Jack Warden? Yep. Want my number two right away? Might as well. Whoever looks at a man's shoes. Morgan Freeman. See, this was one that I, I had difficulty figuring out which one is a character actor. He's a great character actor and never really the lead. So, yes. But I, I was very close to this one myself, but why for you? Shawshank Redemption, Glory, Driving Miss Daisy, um, Amistad, Invictus, Million Dollar Baby. I mean, the 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 uh, catalog of films he was in, and he, he's never been the star necessarily. He's always been second or third in every one of them. He he just has such a presence. You could even list all of the Batman films, for that matter. Yeah, I think he for, does an extraordinary for, job. For uh, Oh well. God, the Oh God films. I mean, oh, he's just Bruce so Almighty. Good. He plays God. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's just so good. Now, if you want, if you want to have a good laugh, I, I think it's available oh, on YouTube. Don't say Electric Company. Yes, go and type in Electric Company and watch some old episodes of he and Rita Moreno on Electric Company. This is a guy who's going. I'm a great actor. Why am I doing this crap? <laughs> he, he just looks like he's bills, just man. there, moving the around, bills. going. I don't want to do this. But it's paying the bills. It's, there are plenty that have inauspicious starts. Uh, shall we consult all of the roles that... Uh, um, oh, why am I... Yeah, Walter White, uh, Breaking Bad. Um, Brian uh, Cranston. Yeah, that Brian Cranston's done over the years. Yeah. I mean, he uh, got part of his start doing the narration for Power Rangers. <laughs> okay. So, all right. But, uh, by the way, I looked up Shampoo. Hal Ashby was the director. Okay. So, all right. My number two. Why so serious? He's by far the best Joker. And if it were not for the number one on this list, he would have very easily been my number one. In fact, when I started my list, I started with him. But then I thought about it a little bit, and I crept and put one person ahead of him for a particular role because it's more meaningful to me and this is a favorites not a best list if you gotta go down for one performance god damn it if this is the performance you go down on and Heath Ledger for the Dark Knight as the Joker is just going to be iconic for as long as I'm living he will always place up there there are two particular people that I always thought got the Joker right and that is voice actor Mark Hamill and Heath Ledger as the 
personal personification. There is no better true anarchist, and he just plays the role so brilliantly, even down to the small details that he gets, from his mannerisms to the fact that his prosthetics to keep his lips open kept drying out his lips, so he kept licking them to give this just weird creepiness to the Joker that uh, you can't really match. All of the small things that were done, the small ad-libs that he put in there, the way that he changes the Joker's story to make that match every piece of it, but yet he plays each of them like, oh, could this really be the story of the origin of the Joker? No, because we got a really crappy uh, Joaquin Phoenix version of that. But (laughs) he, for me, will always be the Joker. He has laid down the mantle and everybody else is trying to get anywhere close to that at this point. And I don't think anybody can attain it. I know that for some people it's Jack Nicholson. For some people it's Cesar Romero. I'm not sure why, but the Joker for me will always be Heath Ledger. Well, no. The, well, the Penguin, the best Penguin was uh, Burgess Meredith. but That is that is undebatable. I will uh, completely <laughs> Because there have only been two uh, Penguins. So... <laughs> It's really hard for Burgess Meredith not to beat out Danny DeVito. Well, you got to meet Danny DeVito, so That's I don't know. That's true, I did. So, all right. So I believe that's now for your number one. Oh, so I'm going first with my number one. Well, you yeah. jumped ahead of me uh, on the list here at, I think, about number three. Maybe number Why two. Why don't you give your number one? This was my idea. I beg for this. I'm okay with that. So go ahead. So my number one, and the one that holds more meaning for me, I am almost emotional every time I watch him give this portrayal, particularly because of the tragicness of his uh, ending and how magnificent and brilliant he was as a comedian, an actor, just the amount of things that he was capable of doing and the fact that we didn't get more uh, time with him. I, I just, it it's tragic for me because for everything that he did, I think this is by far his most beautiful, profound, meaningful role. And there are so many small things that I feel like I get out of his performance and every line that he delivers in this film, and it's Robin Williams for Goodwill Hunting. I, I huh. it's one of my top favorite films. He won his Academy Award for it as Best Supporting Actor. I, I think he's absolutely extraordinary because he has such a intensity, but vulnerability, honesty, accessibility to the entire performance that it feels raw that you can touch his soul. And I connect with him so well during the course of this movie that, for me, it is by far the character that I love to probably rewatch more than any other. Okay. When I was doing my list, I, like I said, I came up with, I think it was over 75 different actors. And I, I, I stopped to think about, even though it was best performances, I've always thought that, the performance, you can't just limit it to one performance, especially if they've done multiples that are really good. And I worked through the list in my head a lot of times while I was driving back and forth from the house to the office 
in the morning. And I kept coming back to one actor. And it's an actor that you're going to think, pause for a minute. And then I, I, I put it down as my number one. And I happened to look at a, a list of the critics list that was on IMDb. They came up with the same number one. Carl Malden for both Streetcar Named Desire, well, it's Streetcar Named Desire on the waterfront, and Patton. He had a long career where he had extremely demanding key performances that were kind of a stabilizing force in a movie about people who were a little off the edge. And for whatever reason, I've always thought he was so good in in what he did and what in those films and that he really kind of had a, a a presence and such that was so good and his acting was so clean and 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 crisp and you believed him and he had i mean even later in his career when he was i think close to 90 he plays a priest on the west wing who counsels President oh gosh, I didn't realize that was Carl Malden. Yes, and tells the story about sending a or sending a plane yeah, or a boat yeah. or a truck, a boat, and a helicopter. <clears throat> so yes, and he just punishment had a huge and successful career. Where it, you know, when you can say that I was a key performer in three films that are Streetcar Named Desire, On the Waterfront, and Gypsy. I don't know how much better of a career as a character actor you can have, but he was also in Gypsy, and he was in I Confess, which was a Hitchcock film from the early 50s. So he had such a good career, and I just kept thinking over and over, he was just so good, so clean, that I just thought, he's number one. He's got to be number one to me. And then I saw the list, and I'm like, well, I guess I'm not alone in that assessment. All right, then. So those are our lists. And just a refresher on our top tens. Mine was Angela Lansbury, George Sanders, Walter Houston, Arlie Ermey, Samuel L. Jackson, Jack Nicholson, Christoph Waltz, J.K. Simmons, Heath Ledger, and Robin Williams. So you want me to give mine in order? Yeah, that would be implied. Okay, Thomas Mitchell... Ed Harris, Lee J. Cobb, Kathy Bates, Walter Brennan, Eli Wallach, Thelma Ritter, Jack Warden, Morgan Freeman, and Carl Malden. Morgan Freeman? What did I say? You said Organ. I said Morgan. You did not. Yes, I did. Why would I say Organ? I don't know. You were thinking of Phantom of the Opera? Maybe okay. Uh, I don't think a fan of the opera because I hated the Andrew Lloyd Webber version. Okay, well, whatever. So anyway, no. All right, so that's going to do it for us this week. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. Demille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be doing our first movie of Season 2, 12 Angry Men, starring Henry Fonda and currently playing on YouTube with ads. So you won't want to miss that one. 
Please like, subscribe, review, or whatever on whatever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at at gmoat, G-M-O-A-T podcast. Or you can visit our blog, which is usually linked to the show, and we will have a full article on our two lists so that you can follow along as we go along. Uh, in the show notes for every episode while I work on upgrading our remastered site that will be coming soon. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our show is th- our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM. 